Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Cedar Skier Podcast on Shuffle Lake Public Radio. It's June 5th, 2021, and I believe we have one of the most exciting shows uh, on tap for you today. No, Jesse Dickens is not here. No, Johannes Klabo is not joining us. But we have some interesting stories for you, so we're just going to hop right into it. Uh, I shouldn't do that. I, sh- I should give you... I should be a good podcaster and tell you what you're about to get yourself into. Want to talk a little bit about Sarah Lancaster. Have you heard of her? Maybe not. I haven't until just a couple of days ago. Also, giving you an exciting update on a project that we are working on here at cedarskier.com. And uh, I'm going to give you some insight to that. And then finally, uh, news from the World Cup. The first, or the World Cup is going to return to North America. And there's a headline that caught my attention. I did some deep diving historical analysis, and I believe I have uncovered a grave mistake by the uh, sports journalists, especially in skiing here, that needs to be, we need to get to the bottom of this now. Um, And so we're going to get into that at the end of the show, and I think you'll find that exciting, and maybe you'll want to hop on and join us on this project. So all that and more here on the Cedar, and and a very important announcement as well, something that financially could benefit you tremendously. So uh, we'll get to that later on in the show. Cedar Skier Podcast, Shovel Lake Public Radio. What builds mental toughness is confidence. Hi, everyone. My name is Antoine Sue. Hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from APU. I'm Haley Sorbel. Hi, this is Andy Newell from Stratton Mountain School, Solomon Team. It's doing the hard workouts. We're talking about practice, man. Week after week, effectively. What brings you? Well, competition. Yeah. You know. That's the great thing about sports. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing it really, really well. First of all, skis need wax. I took care of it. It's illegal in nine countries. Saw that. Skis are just fast as lightning. You play to win. You're really fun race. And I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. I don't think he's going to get that message, Joe. I mean, the guy's got worms in his living room. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. I've had it with this dump. I have to pause for one second because my oven is beeping. (laughs) You probably heard it in the background. Hold on a minute. You know, we're going to have to work hard. We're going to have to train hard. But, you know, this group has got a gnarly work ethic, you know, so that's not going to be the problem. Just be tough, you know. I think think that that's a way that American skiers have found success in the past. I don't think that that's likely to change. Ready? I was born. Excellent, excellent, excellent. You have joined us here on the Cedar Skier Podcast, brought to you by the United States Ski Pole Company, Sport Hill, Vitamix, and, of course, Zoom Snacks. We haven't even told you about Zoom Snacks, but we're not going to do it today because we don't have time. So, first story on the docket, we have, I, I, I spotted this um, scrolling through Twitter, you know, the great, the greatest invention of all of mankind, Twitter, and I just got to pull up my story here about Sarah Lancaster. This is pretty incredible. Uh, from Runner's World here, great writing by Sarah Butler as well. She, she's done a few uh, pretty interesting articles, actually. She had another one that was, um, I think it had to do with salaries of runners, or it was something that was semi-interesting. Anyway, so Sarah, Sarah Lancaster, her coach, Julie Benson, Benson, have never met in person. They've been working since March, talking on the phone and trading texts, but the first time their paths crossed was May 15th at the Sound Running Track Meet in Irvine, California. Lancaster was there attempting to qualify for the 
OT in the 5,000 meters, but first they had to find each other. Benson was at the track early to watch another athlete race. When Lancaster arrived, she texted her coach. Benson told her she was on the backstretch. Lancaster's response, what's that? Uh, you know, you don't know what the, the backstretch, backstretch is. A few hours later, Lancaster ran 15-13, well under the 15-20 she needed to line up at the Olympic trials this month in Eugene. Two weeks later, she qualified in a second event, the 1500, by running 405. Of all the surprises of this frenzied elite track season, the emergence of Lancaster might be the most confounding. She's 33 years old, a full-time attorney in Austin, Texas, and she played two varsity sports in Division One, University of Texas, as an undergraduate, but neither was track. Just crazy, okay? The athletic, the athleticism pouring out of this woman is just overwhelming. Uh, the, the, one of the best, maybe the best athletic Division One university in the entire nation. She competes D1 in two sports, and neither of them are track. Now she's world-class in track. And not just like, you know, uh, a track event that typically, if you were really athletic, you could maybe bleed into if you were very coordinated, but but a sport that typically benefits those who have invested long-term. So, crazy. In an interview with Runners World, Lancaster, she grew up in San Antonio, played all sports. As a freshman in high school, she started for the varsity basketball team. She, she was best at tennis. Her sophomore year, she went to Houston to train at a tennis academy and became one of the top players in the state. With six hours of training a day, her game improved significantly, but she also suffered overuse injuries, stress fractures in her back, and returned home to regular high school for the second half of her junior year. Even just that part of the story alone of like uh, very talented varsity, uh, varsity as a freshman, basketball, big deal there, you know, and but then her, to have her true talent be tennis, she leaves, goes to Houston, tennis school, six hours a day, like that's just nuts. But but then comes back too, kind of, you know, gives it like a 14 month stint. She heals. Her friends convinced her to play basketball again, as well as tennis her senior year. She also ran the 400 and four by one on the track team with the understanding that she wouldn't be at practice. She would just show up at meets. So does taste track just a tad, but in the 400 and the four by one. Lancaster was recruited to UT for tennis, playing somewhere between fourth and sixth singles. Quote, I was kind of the person the team could count on to win their match, she said. In Austin, the tennis team had no indoor bubble, so when it rained, they'd go to the campus rec center for training. A teammate shot some video of Lancaster playing basketball, and it was forwarded to the basketball coach at the time, Gail Gostenkors. After exhausting her tennis eligibility in four years, Lancaster had a semester of classes left to finish her degree, and Gostenkors invited her to work out with the basketball players over the summer. She ended up playing on the team for her fifth year and appeared in 13 games. As a veteran student-athlete, she was a role model for a team of mostly freshmen. Yeah, that, okay, so that's crazy, right? You, you, It says she competed on the tennis team at Texas from 2006 to 2010. That alone is just incredible. Even when you when you think about you know her high school experience, where you know you'd almost say she would have been burned out, and then she participated on the Longhorns basketball squad as like a fifth year senior. Okay, after graduating, Lancaster went to law school and graduated from Texas Law in 2014. Again, just another little like you know just another little thing she did. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, this this person is maxing out life, and I love it. She took the bar exam that July and started working in a large firm in Dallas shortly thereafter, where 60 to 80 hour weeks were routine. When she moved back to Austin, to the Austin branch of the firm, she had a chance meeting with Texas's club running team coach, and she told him she wanted to run a sub five minute mile. This person is just so motivated. Wow, Sarah, incredible. In preseason workouts for tennis and basketball, Lancaster had always 
had to run a mile and her best had been 525 off no running specific training. I'll let that sink in a little bit while I sip my Cedar Skier coffee. Hmm. All right, Ajay, calm down. Our social media expert dog, Ajay, who enjoys using her finely tuned um, ears, sensory skills to identify moving squirrels and other living creatures at 4.45 in the morning to wake us all up with loud barks. She is in the room as well, hard at work, uh, bolstering our social media presence. Okay, here we go. So she was a 525 miler off base, basically nothing. However, six hours of tennis training a day, like you are going to be quite fit. So I, I understand, not the same as running, but in high school, you can get away with that a little more. I, I was kind of the same way even with basketball. I would just play so much basketball by myself. Um, so many uh, pull-up jump shots and really high-intensity individual workouts and then core max ballistic training. I, I felt extremely fit. I could, uh, and I'm not saying this to brag, but like just this crossover of if you trained hard enough in those sports, I could go on a 9 or 10-mile run without any running in the summer. Every time we'd, we'd go out to Bozeman, Montana for our cross-country uh, camps at, you know, between 650 and 720 pace um, or 730 pace maybe. So that, that was something I remember like kind of having the ability to just kind of hop in and do, but my running economy wasn't great, you know, but this is, this is pretty, that that's pretty remarkable in high school to be a 525 mile off of nothing. So the running coach wrote her a basic training program about 25 miles per week to fit around her working hours. And she ran 446 for 1500 followed a few weeks later by a 432, which converts to a 453. I wonder why they did this just like out on a track probably, you know, all by herself. That's that's insane to time trial of 432. I missed having something like that in my life, Lancaster said. I enjoyed doing it again. Uh, over the next... Oh, and then there's another quote. I don't know. Is this part of the story? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's in it. Over the next two years, she joined a group of men for track workouts on Tuesday nights and did long runs with them, building her mileage to 40 per week. After running 424 for 1500 in 2018, she mentioned, now 2018, so she's 30, she mentioned to her mother, Kelly, that she intended to qualify for the Olympic trials. Crazy. But 424 is very fast. Her mother's response, Sarah, do you understand that people train their whole lives to do that and you have never run before? <laughs> Lancaster was undaunted. Thinking something is going to be really hard motivates me even more to want to try to do it, try to prove her wrong. Crazy. So mom is a source of motivation here one of the men in her training group kevin kimball gave her workouts and by february of 2019 she ran an indoor mile in boston in 439 in april two months later a roughly equivalent 419 so her time's down to 419 then injury set in pain in her right hamstring glute and hip and she missed three months of training even when she returned to running, she was in a great deal of pain, which she, which didn't subside until the late fall. By early 2020, right before the pandemic shut everything down, she shaved four more seconds off a mile, 435 in Boston again. All right, taking a shot at the trials. So she's down to 435. That's, that's good enough to make it to the trials for sure. After a 10-month hiatus from the track, Lancaster ran the 5,000 at the 2020 Sound Running Meet and had a big breakthrough in the event, running 15.34. The Olympic trials qualifying time was within reach. In March, Lancaster made a coaching change to Benson, a 1996 Olympian at 1,500 meters who coached Jenny Simpson to a gold medal at the World Championships in 2011. She also moved to a smaller firm in Austin where she could work fewer hours while Benson introduced some predictability to her training. 
With her training, who am I to say this is all wrong? We're going to do it my way, Benson said in a call with Runner's World. The girl had run 1534. She had run 431 for a full mile. Basically, I would say it was more consistent volume. Let's get you in a good routine. Get in basic training. We're just doing some good strength work. It's nothing fancy, and she's knocking it out of the park. As green as Lancaster is in the world of running, Benson says her race instincts are uncanny, a possible relic of her tennis days. She's got that elite athlete poise, Benson said, describing the sound running 5,000 meters. A little before 2K to go, there was a break that happened. She covered it as if she's been running 5Ks since she was 20. She didn't make a huge move. She didn't make a jerky move. She took about 250 to 300 meters to cover that move, which is what you teach, and it's really hard to do. The other thing Lancaster did that night was hang out in 15th place for the first eight minutes of the race, as Benson had instructed, before going on the offensive for the second half. Quote, we all know runners who are like, I have to run 73 seconds per lap. If there's a 75, their minds go panicky. They had a couple of 74s. I think there was one 75. Not that Sarah would know that. But runners in May and June of the Olympic trials year, if you haven't qualified, you become a little more urgent. The people who don't become like that are the true world-class athletes who are fighting for medals. They're pretty calm and even keeled. Sarah is behaving like they are. It is really amazing. End quote. Benson and Lancaster have decided... I haven't decided what event she'll do at the trials. The first heat of the 1500 goes off at 4.03 p.m. on June 18th. The first round of the 5000 goes off less than two hours later. For a few precious weeks, Lancaster can treasure reaching elite status in a third sport and contemplate where this running talent comes from. I know it's unusual, she said. I do think I'm wired differently. I've been gifted with a lot of athletic ability. I like to compete. I like to try to do things that are hard. I'm not afraid to fail. I'd rather try and not be able to do it than not try at all. The mental part of tennis, she said, translates surprisingly well to track. Running can be tactical, I've realized, she said. With tennis, I always had a good game plan and never lost my calm. I'm used to being in pressure situations when you're serving for the match, or if you don't win these points, you're going to lose. When I go out to run a race, I'm usually not too rattled by what happens. Could she make an Olympic team? This is a woman who did not know where to find the backstretch on a track one month ago. All predictions are out of the window, Benson said. On paper, it does not project that she will make the team, the coach said, but we don't know. Every race, she has run somebody to the wire. So kind of cool. This person clearly instinctual when it comes to athletics. And I'm going to go back to that quote where she talks about the mental part of tennis translating well to track. I do remember coming off of high school basketball and kind of that intense AAU circuit summer league experience. And from about the end of my sophomore year through the um, the summer, even after my senior year of high school, um, I was playing a lot of basketball and just really focused on that. I was hoping to play collegiately. Uh, and and was in that meat grind, so to speak. And I had coaches in high school who were who were quite, you know, verbal, very tough. It was a cutthroat environment, you know, to just uh, survive through to your senior year. I think there was five of us actually, my senior year, which which is kind of a lot. There's some years where there's three. Um, some years there had been one senior. Um, he, their philosophy was like, if you're not going to start or contribute as a senior, you just get cut. So you could dedicate your whole life to the the program and and then not even see it through. And there was a couple kids in my grade that that happened to, and it was just incredibly tragic. They'd given up athletics and other sports in 10th and 11th grade and then got cut November of their senior year and they were just done, you know, and that was just the brutality, you know, just kind of go to the next guy mentality. And so in within that environment, there's just a lot of pressure. And I remember when I started indoor track, I remember my freshman year when I started indoor track at Bemidji State and 
you know, change this dramatic change of sports. One thing I felt, for whatever reason, really confident in stepping on the starting line. My my sort of like competitive toughness, maybe uh, like mentally in the mano a mano. I, I wasn't scared of other athletes on the starting line. I'll say it that way. Um, and I think I viewed them as like kind of these weak, shrimpy runners, you know. And I and I think that came a little bit just the very end of my basketball career. I was often scared in like ninth and tenth grade in basketball if, because I was so small. I was I was uh, I just subconsciously intimidated by people who were stronger than me and faster than me. So my senior year, when I kind of finally grew and bulked up and and was throwing my own body around a little bit and kind of like you know giving people a little bit of retribution, like payback, um, all these kids who had beaten me up locally for you know the previous five years. Uh, when I went to running, I sort of had that that bulldog confidence, I think just a little bit, not, not like a ton, but I just remember not being scared of my competitors. And that was definitely a a transfer from basketball. And I kind of remember thinking, I got to try and hold on to this sort of like the, the pressures, the decision-making that composure. Um, I, I like, like Sarah says here, not really being rattled because when you're in a hot gym in front of a thousand fans, maybe, or at a big school, there's a lot of pressure. You've got huge student section, people you go to school with. Uh, it's way different than the type of pressure you feel in cross country in running or in um, cross country skiing, even in these endurance sports, which there still is pressure. It's just a different kind. So I'm not saying one is more or less than the other, um, because I think like, oh, I think of some, you know, my best friend who was a very, very good runner from a young age and first a 10th grader to win the Minnesota state cross country running championship in 33 years. I can't imagine the type of pressure he felt coming back his junior year and his senior year. Where basically like if he didn't win by a minute at those local races, like something was up and he did win almost every single race by that amount, you know, but then going back to state um, didn't have good performances for him at state meets kind of the next couple of years. And, and so that's a different kind of pressure which is kind of more like internal person versus self to a certain degree. There's some outward pressure too, but it's not quite the same as like the stage fright pressure uh, that you get in a basketball scenario. Or like my dad talked about in wrestling, he felt that too, where it was like, everyone's watching just you, you know, and it's, it's kind of a packed auditorium and all this. And so I think there's something to be said about some of these outside benefits. That's, that's the point I'm trying to bring in for people is, um, you know, whether it's being a concert pianist or being, um, the fourth guy on a basketball team, but at a big school, uh, all those things, th- those can absolutely benefit you later on in your life in a, in a bunch of different areas. This is a great example where, yeah, it's an athletic thing transferring to another athletic thing, but but the concept applies um, where that strength and that confidence, mental toughness transferring. And so I think that's kind of cool how she brings that up very eloquently and clearly talks about that relationship. Uh, from her tennis kind of transferring over and imagine playing d1 for university of texas in basketball too i mean yeah it's not quite the same crowds probably in the women's games as the men's games but still that's high level you know and and to be quite honest it's going to be difficult for any track event uh, maybe the olympic trials you know i guess probably the olympic trials if, if there's a full stadium but to match that level of um just audible pressure you know, from a crowd, a stress standpoint. So she's obviously there, has all those kind of intrinsic uh, natural instincts. That part is checked off, which I think is super exciting for Lancaster. Now, the, the next part is the mental side, like in terms of her determination, I find to be really, 
really fascinating. This quote, I know it's unusual. She said, I do think I'm wired differently. I've been gifted with a lot of athletic ability. I like to compete. I like to try to do things that are hard. I'm not afraid to fail. I think that last, I like to try to do things that are hard. I'm not afraid to fail. want to just hone in on that. That is a cool aspect of like that lifelong athlete that the carrot out in front of them is always just kind of that challenge. Um, people who are always looking for that that challenge to overcome. And interestingly, this was something that kind of got brought up in a sermon I was listening to um, at our church recently, a couple weeks ago, about how, you know, man in general, men and women, uh, we have this kind of built-in, built-in desire or need to to kind of be challenged, actually. And we, we will almost look for that even in artificial places, whether it's, uh, and this is where the video game industry is so successful, right? They, they create these levels and these challenges where you're just hooked on trying to overcome it. And then when you get to the end, you're kind of like, what was the point of that? And then you just find the next game and you, you kind of are hooked again. And, and the point of the sermon, I guess, was sort of related to a philosophy of work and, and like what's the point, basically, of, of all that, but, but also addressing this innate human uh, desire of, of being challenged and putting yourself to a task. Uh, and this person clearly has that in terms of sports. But then the, the other side of that is um, not being afraid to fail, I think, is, is really critical. Now, this person does not sound, Sarah Lancaster does not sound like someone who probably has failed much on the surface. You might think that, like uber talented, tennis, basketball, everything, right? Um, but I would, I would actually tend to think that in her mind, she probably has kind of gone to the well in terms of failure too. Whether it's, you know, because you're uber talented, you know, placing fifth place at a state meet or something like that would have been just complete, utter humiliation. Uh, and, and that's very real. But I think uh, the athletes who have sort of failed the greatest are the ones, or the athletes that rise to the top and aren't afraid of failure typically are athletes who have been humiliated enough before. They kind of realize that, okay, even if the very worst thing possible in my head happens, I'm still kind of okay. So I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, and it's those athletes who actually don't really experience that who are always sort of petrified of it. So I think those two things are critical ingredients to, to Sarah Lancaster's success. The fact that she has this constant hunger to go try new things and be challenged, and then also isn't afraid of failure if that were to happen. Um, and it's interesting, you know, this quote from her mom, like, you think about her career attorney, right, very successful. She's way past her, the normal idea of a prime at 33 years old. Like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? And I just found this story personally to be very inspirational on that level where where you you know our world and society we're kind of breaking out of this a little bit but I think at least I grew up sort of in this idea of like there's certain uh, age limits where you sort of do things in life you know you kind of have your high school and you can it's totally acceptable socially to compete and take sports seriously in high school and then if you go to college and you do the same thing that's also still respectable but you kind of have to be at least decent at it to be taking it really seriously, you know, like, otherwise that's a little frowned upon because really you should be using your college to kind of prepare yourself for a career. And so unless you're like a national champion contender, you know, you should probably be taking those internships and taking those uh, work study abroad opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and so, and then after college, right, you go get a job and, and you work that job for a little bit and you save up and you have a kid and you get married and you sort of build this wealth and that model life of, 
accumulate, accumulate, accumulate for what, right? Like it's always the end goal of the ultimate American dream is to work as hard as you possibly can and be smart and save up so that like when you're 70 years old, you've got like 10 years of just ridiculous extravagant wealth and money that you you really can't even possibly spend <laughs> you know like uh that that's like the perfect life kind of and I, I i i'm saying that with broad terms of like the overall idea because i do think well it is responsible and and this would be i have relatives experiencing this right where they were responsible with their money they spent some on their kids they spent some for retirement they invested wisely and then when they got old they actually used that money for nursing home payments and for things like that and and instead of having the government come and save them so that is i think a biblically responsible call to be responsible i'm not diminishing that at all i think that is actually true where americans i think have gone too far is they they actually are always putting off we aren't oh my gosh we aren't doing this actually like millennials aren't doing this right they have nothing saved but what i'm saying i'm accusing maybe the culture before me right almost my parents generation of like this view of here's how you live your life right and it is go to college get a job save up work hard for 45 years and then retire right and that's like the pinnacle of life almost becomes once you've retired, you've got all this money saved. It's like, whoa, you could spend your whole life or waste your whole life and then have millions saved up in retirement and you're 65 years old, you could retire with just the perfect setup and then die of a heart attack like two years later. Like if that happened to me, I'd just be like, whoa, or, or worse yet maybe even, right? A year before retirement, you've got everything set up, ready to go in the bank and then you die then, right? Now you, now you feel like you've been hand at the plow for that long doing maybe what you didn't even you didn't utilize your strengths and you didn't glorify God in the way you wanted to and but you did it anyway because you know you got to for that retirement at the end and the reason I'm talking about this is because people like Sarah Lancaster are sort of I think finding they're they're figures who are helping others the normal people find the balance between living a little bit fearlessly being willing to kind of like unshackle the norms and what people say you can't do this or you couldn't do this or you shouldn't do this and also living kind of wisely because you know she's she does have this attorney right she's she's passed the bar and she's she's obviously probably quite wealthy from that and and yet she's sort of like hey, you know what? I could like make it to the Olympics. I'm going to actually like spend this chunk of my life here now and I'm going to like go all in. And it's not as even if she's quit her job, right? Reduced hours. Um, but her mom's like, are you nuts? And she's just kind of like, hey, the, I'll just add that to, as fuel to the fire. Um, so me personally thinking, you know, this stage of my life, uh, we're just kind of coming off this, this contract as a teacher. Um, and I've been a teacher or coach here for the last, what, five years? I spent three years as Alamos Elementary teacher, normal job, went and was a Nordic ski coach for a year and then was a band director for a year in Leadville and now one year. So I guess I've worked six years, five of them as, as being a public school teacher, a normal 40 plus hour a week job. And, uh, and I very much enjoyed it and have, and have felt like I'm kind of fulfilling that masculine role, right? To provide for the family. Uh, but recently now looking ahead, it's like, Wow, do you? How long do you hold on to some of these dreams that have sort of you know you you have invested hard work in, whether it's athletically or another passion you might have artistically, musically, or for me, I you know this writing and the, these shows as well. And I think the conventional wisdom sometimes 
you 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 take it and you absorb it and you go what can I what can I learn and glean from this I'm going to pocket that wisdom and also apply sort of a little bit of Sarah Lancaster like I'm 33 and I'm going to try and make it in the 1500 that seems ridiculous there's just no way on the surface and and no track and field background and you just go for it anyway not really fearing the failure aspect because you kind of know like what's the worst that could happen right and I think for those of you out there listening, if you're like thinking, well, if I quit my job and chase this other dream, the worst that could happen is I go maybe a year without income and struggle to find new work. And for many people, that that looks like a pretty grim outlook. They're like, yeah, that's pretty bad. If that manifested itself, it would be a disaster. And I think sometimes we have to step back and calm down and go, you know what? even if the worst that could happen externally out here and you lost your job and you lost a lot, like you'll still be okay. You'll still be okay. And I think some people who have tasted enough failure, they can kind of actually reconcile that. They can go, yeah, maybe that is true. Like I was humiliated in, in 10th grade when I, when I choked in the lead role in Peter Pan and, and felt like my whole world was crumbling. And then I realized I could get through that and, so maybe you're right. Like if I if I am someone who who thinks that I have to have a six figure job and I have to do this just to like survive, uh, no, you can you can actually weather a lot more storms than you think. And so this is my new favorite athlete for sure cheering in the Olympic trials on the women's side, which we still have to get our Olympic trials breakdown show coming up at some point here. Uh, we'll break down all these, but I didn't even I hadn't even heard of her. And man, fifteen thirteen is no joke at all. Neither is four oh five. I'm trying to decide actually, like which one is she closer to? And the the fifteen or the four oh five, I think seems closer, especially when you consider that like anything can happen in a fifteen hundred. And her tenacity and like that that uh, competitive psyche or what she was talking about, the transfer of being kind of composed within a race and how that transferred over. And then her coach just saying this, this girl's got like natural strategy instincts. That makes me think the 1500 might be better, but Shelby Houlihan is uh, if she's healthy as a lock. And now that's a huge if like she hasn't run a race in 2021. Uh, the 1500 on the women's side is going to be a very tough field to break through. But I do think that could provide for some, and it always seems like there is, a long shot who makes it the Olympic trials is probably the best track and field event in the world. It's, I, I do think it's even better than the Olympics. Um, it, it, which is crazy because the reason the Olympic part of the reason the Olympic trials is so great is because of the prestige of the Olympics, but the actual event itself in terms of drama, competitiveness, uh, laying it on the line, the Olympics has way more of that. And part of the reason is, is once you make it out of the Olympic trials, you've kind of, you have kind of made it from a career standpoint. You know, if a runner makes it, makes an Olympic team, they're kind of set up financially just to do that. It doesn't even matter how they do at the Olympics, but it really matters how they do at the Olympic trials. Uh, fourth place finishes can often and often do mean the end of a career, which, which can be sad, but it's just absolutely the reality. Uh, so, I think the 1500 could be where it's at, but who knows? Maybe she, and I haven't seen her run. Maybe her economy is just off the charts too, where it's, you know, the 5,000 could be where it's at. So pretty cool story. And this was combined and I kind of brought up or alluded to it here just recently that, you know, my next step too, but I've been um, uh, talking with Ivan Bobikov, the former uh, three-time Olympian, 
Russian and Canadian skier uh, immigrated to Canada in 2003. We had a conference call, I guess I'll call it, on Tuesday of this week, sort of talking about this idea of, of doing a book. And his life is, I, I, I don't know if there's any skier out there that ha- would have a more interesting biography. It's not just more interesting, but more meaningful. And that's kind of why, to me, I go, this is a project worth doing, you know, seeing through to the end. Because the themes that you uh, would extract from an Ivan Babikov story are applicable to all ages, to um, all athletes, really to all walks of life. So we talked for a little bit. We're, we've now hopped in. Uh, we're both kind of greenhorns in this whole process, obviously. But uh, it's been uh, Wednesday no, Thursday and Friday were uh, a little over two-hour interview sessions. We've kind of, uh, he's been sharing the early stage of his journey. I've been peppering him with questions and going down rabbit trails, which has been perfect. And um, every time he shares something, it it does, it, it further inspires me too. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking, even if I can't produce this book, I'm not even going to say it like that, but but even if this uh, if this book didn't move someone, the interviews alone with Ivan have been inspirational to me already. And we're not even through to the point where he's started his university. This is just through age 18. So that all I can really allude to for those of you is this is going to be an amazing project. Um, <clears throat> we had a Ivan Babikov on the show. I have two episodes uh, posted where... I, I interviewed him and they lost, uh, it's about two hours of content. And, you know, for him though, talking a million miles an hour, it's, it's more like four hours of, of content in some ways. And it's crazy uh, that that gives you just a brief glimpse though of the story. We've dived into the, the background, the Russian culture aspect and how that impacted things. Some things in his family life that have been, uh, to me at least, I think really significant. His early days in, in skiing and athletics in general and just how far away his mind was from um, you know the possibility of doing it as a career or, or being an Olympian even. Uh, but then when the, the quick turnaround realization of how it did come about and how that's connected back to the homeland and Russia and the, the heroism of those athletes, what they represent, the pride of the nation. Uh, that's all just incredibly fascinating. So I am um, very committed to seeing this project out to the end, and we're, we're sort of exploring options for how to make it a real possibility. I think if, you know, if I was um, someone like a Bill McKibben or John Martin, which I've actually reached out to both those guys asking for advice, and they both have responded. I felt very honored that they would take time to uh, respond to me, you know, inexperienced, inexperienced author and give me some advice on uh, things. And Yvonne actually channeled some of his resources too. He he talked with Jesse Diggins for a little while about, you know, some of working through that book and what were what were lessons we can learn from it. Um, it was pretty cool to to have those connections, uh, I, I felt. So um, we're not sure if it's going to be one of those things where we work to find a publisher or we just actually do a self-publishing thing and that that seems to be actually the direction that uh actually both bill and john have sort of leaned like that's definitely doable um and and it might be the only option for us so we'll see uh looking forward to that it'd be awesome if we could get something out around the olympics i don't know if that's too tight of a timeline though but uh it's kind of the sarah lancaster like jumping in i can imagine right now my parents going don't you know people spend their whole life trying to write a book uh, you know, a good book anyway. And I, I told John in my email this morning before the show, kind of saying like, uh, Yvonne's story is incredible, right? But uh, they always say your first book is your worst book. So 
that's that's not good for in terms of for Eva. But I I am I'm I'm going to give every ounce of effort to make sure that we do his story justice. So that's a, an exciting little announcement. And speaking of exciting announcements, if you follow the FIS US Ski um, World, you've probably read that Minneapolis is back on the World Cup schedule for the 2023 to 2024 season. That's awesome. So, and even, maybe even more exciting, there's just it's just gonna be great. The North American Swing, they're calling it. Uh, we've got three days of racing north of the border, Canmore, Alberta, in February. Let's see. So it says Canmore, February 9th to 11th. Minneapolis, February 16th to 18th. And then Wisconsin, the American Berkey Biner, February 22nd and 24th, coinciding with the 50th anniversary anniversary of the Berkey. Let's go. Where, how is that 72 then? 1972 was the first Berkey. Now, this, this has uh, taken up a lot of research time I did not know was going to happen. Okay, because um, this line in, well, in several newspapers talking about how, um, <clears throat> oh, I was going to talk about uh, another Duluth guy, George Hovland, passing away. Shoot, I've got all my links up right now. Uh, we had some other other uh, extravagant like running stories. Apparently, the Iron Cowboy, that guy who did fifty Ironmans in fifty days in fifty states, is now doing a hundred Ironmans in like the same loop in a hundred days in a row. Like, like, how many Ironmans do you do before you get kind of bored of that distance? I guess. I guess he's just kind of like every day. That's what you do. Just do an Ironman. Um, uh, Hovland died at 94. He was a 1952 Olympian, uh, dedicated his life to skiing and opened up the, um, opened up and ran Snowflake Nordic Center, which is in Duluth. And he was also, you know, instrumental in, um, just ski cross country skiing for youth in the Duluth region in general, raced the Berkey from 1973 through 2012, missed it once. He also was the first non-European to compete in the Vassalopet race in Sweden. That's kind of an, actually an interesting fact. I, w- I almost wonder what's the most amazing George Hovland piece of information. It might be that. Um, and then he helped design the Trails of Giants Ridge, which hosted 1985 Minnesota's first and so far only FIS World Cup event. Um, what was the other thing that we wanted to bring up for him? Really involved with kids. Very cool. My George Hovland experience, I actually did run into him. It was during the winter, my fifth year senior uh, college. I was hurt. It was like the most miserable, you know, dark night of a black a black cloud that hang over my life so far. It was just kind of one of those very depressing years, very hard to get through. And I had been skiing slightly just to try and stay in shape a little bit. And I was up visiting or with visiting the in-laws. And so I went to Snowflake with these really crappy skis and I had no idea what I was doing at all. So my equipment was messed up. I probably had like, you know, glide wax in the grip zones. It was it was kind of that bad. And the snow, it was an awful year, Minnesota. Like you, I don't know if anyone skied like the whole year. It was, it was like 2014, 2015. So I'll look back in the annals. It might have been the year that a couple of those races just were canceled because there was no snow. And it was, it was incredible, incredibly ironic where like the one year where I really needed that um, or could have used that. <laughs> it just was impossible to come by. So I just remember coming in frustrated once I was out trying to ski on these trails and snowflake and I'm like, I can't get any grip. Like, can someone help me? Like, show me why I want to go cross country skiing. Right. And, and George like took my skis and like squeezed the camber with one hand together. And then he gave them back to me. He's like, can you do this? And I couldn't, my grips 
my grip's kind of weak. It's pretty bad at this point too. You know, probably it was really bad. He's like, that's your problem. You don't have the strength to compress these. And I was trying to say like, well, like I'm running 110 miles a week. I'm a strong athlete in the lower body. Like I just have really small hands. They're, they're The grip strength isn't really there, blah, blah, blah. Like that has nothing to do with this. And and he was just kind of like, nope, you're, you're going to struggle on these things. It's not the snow's fault. It's not my beautiful trail's fault. There's, there was my run-in with George Hovland. I think, it, yeah, it was George in there. It was, it was kind of crazy that you looking back, like I actually did talk to this guy who was pretty instrumental, had an incredible, especially in, you know, Midwest cross-country skiing lore. Okay, so let me get back to the story, though. Uh, I got to find where it was. Where was the article that said... First World Cup. Oh, well, we'll just go to the Duluth News Tribune since we're kind of in Duluth. So this is this is interesting here. So the long-term calendar, blah, blah, blah. If events happen, it would mark the return of the World Cup to the upper Midwest. Telemark and Cable hosted the first World Cup race in 1978. Well, Giants Ridge hosted Minnesota's first and only cross-country World Cup in 1985. I knew about the 1985 Giants Ridge one. I didn't really know about the Telemark one. So I was like... Huh, what is this about? So the link uh, takes you to crosscountryskihistory.us, okay? 1978, December. December 20 and 21st of 1978 were the first World Cup races ever. So that line go, it makes me think, huh, I, I sort of had this thought in my head that the first World Cup season was 1981, 1982, right? And 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 then so I, I go to my Wikipedia, reliable ever, right? And I'm looking at the seasons, the standings, and it has every season all the way through present. Okay. Bolshinov's won two straight globes in a row. Yeah, Klopp was gonna get in this game. Anyway, backing up a little bit. Okay, we've got really 1981-1982. Bill Koch wins the first overall. That's that is actually truly the first official World Cup season. Okay. Now, Coke wins in 81-82, but before then, you've got 1973-1974 to 1980-1981. There, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seasons that took place before the 81-82. And so I kind of tried to understand what was that all about. Like, um, you know, like, okay, it's not the first official one, but turns out, you know, if you if you do look into that, you can find that there were these series of competition organized by FIS. Um, and, and they were kind of unofficial World Cups, okay? So that happened eight seasons. And obviously, then that, that statement that the first World Cup race was in Telemark is very misleading because really the first official World Cup race would have been from the 1981-82, right? It started in Reitemwinkel, West Germany on January 9th. Looks like that was actually the first official competition. If you're if you're really getting um, critical, right? Because the official first season was 81-82. but but certainly the there were World Cup races before then because we had the seventy three seventy four. You know those unofficial ones. Okay, so I think you got to kind of go back and really, if you were getting ultra technical, I think you have to probably look at. Let's see, those seasons, right? If I click on that season, 73, 74. Can I do that from this website? Hold on a minute. Uh, there was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, 1974, this is this is excellent. I found a different wiki page, not like the American Wikipedia one, really. 1974, Cross-Country World Cup, series of competitions. World Cup began on January 9th, 1974, in Castellarato and ended on March 9th in Oslo. The World Cup was held on a trial basis for the first time, thus unofficially. The athletes 
in places 1 to 20 received World Cup points. Ivar Formal won the overall rating. So the first World Cup race, even on an unofficial standpoint, January 9th, 1974, <coughs> in Italy, 30K race. Won by Gerd Deitmar Klaus. <laughs> um, I'm trying to see, like, who's the first person I'd even recognize here? The third weekend of World Cup racing taking place in Reitamwinkel, uh, 15K, Juha Mieto. I, I obviously know him, so he was kind of the first person I recognized there. Norway won a relay, World Cup relay. We had the World Nordic Ski Championships. And in Oslo, the 50K, right? Magni Miramo, Ivar Formo, Juha Mieto. They, they're all in, they're the overall World Cup. Juha was three points back from Ivar. So that's like your first season, the real first season, I guess, you could look at. Now, oh, has my Czech ski... Oh, wow. This has been an incredible morning of looking up results, by the way, of things. And so there's some interesting links if you go to this wiki page. I should really post these in the notes. But for me to try and find out what was really happening here has been incredible because I could... The U.S. ski history thing obviously had the 1978 Telemark event, but I couldn't really find much more else about that. Now I've just uploaded a 255-page document, checkski.com. It's PDF. And they've got one every year, ski year, 1974 on checkski.com. You're not going to be able to probably read any of it, but it looks like it does have some numbers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's going to be helpful as I'm trying to get to the bottom of this uh, controversy with Telemark. That's what this is, controversy. Cedar Skier Podcast. So let's move into this, right? We have this first season, 1974. No, nothing in North America. Then we have the 74-75 season, which actually starts in January 8th, 1975. Not sure why they didn't really just call that 1975. That's the second unofficial one. Uh, I don't see any Americans in any results on that one. Okay, we go to year three, 75-76, uh, which actually did start December 20th, 1975. So this one is, you know, crosses the bridge of the, of the year. And we have 17th. January 17th, 1976, Bill Koch gets third in a 15K in Reitram Winkle. Cool. So he's on the podium. That's like the first unofficial podium, really, you could say. He also got second, obviously, at the Winter Olympics that year. And away we go. Okay, overall World Cup, Bill Koch's actually eighth in the standings. That's pretty cool. 83 points behind. Two Finns, Arto Kovisto and Juha Mieto. I, I know I'm butchering these names. Jim Glass is probably going to... Facebook messaged me after the show. 7677. So this is year number one, two, three, four, four. Okay. We have here it is, folks. Here it is. January 1977. We have the actual first telemark event, a 15K. One by Timu Pitkinen. Second, Advar Bra. Third, Yuhani Repo. Repo. Telemark, 1977. Now, what I discovered here in my deep diving was, in the Duluth article, it mentions the first ever World Cup. We've already kind of dismissed it, that I don't even know what they mean by first ever World Cup because we've already talked about that's not even in the official season, which was 1981-82. But if we're going unofficial, it started in 74. And so I don't know how they're saying that's the first World Cup performance. Like that to me is just the most bizarre statement unless someone can write the, the, this ship. I don't understand what they're trying to make with that claim but that was saying december 20 of 1978 so we have an event here that took place again on january of 1977 that that is almost two years before 
1978 one, right? Because January of 1977 and December of 1978, you're you're looking at a 23-month gap. So we have this first event, right? In 1977, January 1977, but it gets worse here, okay? We have that first event, then the next unofficial season. We also have December of 1977, okay? We have the second event at Telemark. It actually kicked off the 77-78 season. This was won by Heike Torvi, second, Jorma Corpra, and third, Jim Glanis. So we got to get Jim on the show and tell us about this. This was the second event at Telemark, a World Cup event, okay? Oh, my goodness. Then we go to the next season. And again, Telemark hosts a World Cup event. We have a 15K. We've got 3 by 10 k relay, which the Americans got second with Stan Donkley, Tim Caldwell, and Bill Koch. Um, no Americans on the podium there. This is the third event at Telemark that has taken place, according to these, these websites, and this is the one that's referenced by Duluth as being the first one. So again, the controversy in my mind just overwhelming. Okay, so I, I was trying to, to research and see, can I find any information on that f- actual first event that took place in January of 1977? Can I find anything about the second event where Jim got third? And then the third event, we've got kind of a lot from that. So let's start out with this. The actual first event, I could find one article that mentioned this. It was from Sports Illustrated. Okay, Sports Illustrated and... This is kind of interesting because, uh, let's see if, can I actually get here? It says, I'm a little confused actually, the SI stat. This is from the archives, January 3rd, 1977. Okay, this is, this might add even another twist because I'm kind of confused why or how this is possible. Something is off on the dates. The SI vault has an article from their... January 3rd, 1977, about the very first Nordic World Cup event on U.S. soil. It says, all their expenses paid, the top European stars came to Wisconsin for the first U.S. Nordic World Cup event and were dazzled by the hoopla and tough trails. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, how could this be, how could this take place January of 1977 if... The race itself was, the race itself, when did it take place? Let me go back to that page. It says here that, oh, oh, it does. It says January 1977. So maybe it was like January 1. Because if the SI article comes out January 3rd, usually those, you know, that that artic- that story would have had to been written like the day after, right? If I'm crazy, maybe, you know, like, you know, I see what I'm saying. So unless it was... um I suppose could have gone from like December or something. It, uh, on this Wikipedia page, interesting, it just says January 1977. So it doesn't have a date. All right, so let's go back to the SI article. Okay, this is about, again, the actual first one. Um, and this is a, a Sports Illustrated article. There was an unmistakable flavor of the Olympics in the air. 
National flags waving from their masts, tongue-twisting names on the entry list, world-class racers in the field. Yet, stirred in with his heady stuff was a weird mixture of sounds and sights, the boom of Indian drums and the jangle of their dancing bells, the cacophony of singles bar chatter, the howl of wolves in the woods, and the shouts of small children. Sounds just like Wisconsin. And everywhere there was learned babble on the occult science of ski waxing in Finnish, Norwegian, German, and the flat inflections of Vermont English. (laughs) It was bizarre, yet somehow all of it blended together in astonishing harmony last week in the Northwoods of Wisconsin during an event that carried the unlikely label of the Gichigami Games. The name, Longfellow called it Gichigumi in Hiawatha, is derived from Ojibwa and means Great Waters. The Gichigami Games were at once... Uh, And the Gichigami Games were at once sizable, consequential, and dependent upon frozen water, being the most prestigious Nordic ski racing contest in the United States since the Squaw Valley Olympics in 1960. The Games attracted a field of European cross-country skiers, the likes of whom never assemble outside their native continent except when an Olympics demands it. For most Americans, their names had all the impact of those on a page torn from the Helsinki phone book, but in Scandinavia and Central Europe, they belong to heroes. That's great. That's a great line. For most Americans, their names had all the impact of those on a page torn from the Helsinki phone book. But in Scandinavia and Central Europe, they they belong to heroes. There were the Finns, Arto Arto Koivisto, Matti Pitkinen, Juhani Repo. The Norwegians, Adver Bra, Odd Martinsen, Magni Mirmo, Thomas Magnuson of Sweden, Franz Rangli of Switzerland, and George Zipfel of West Germany. Perhaps the only familiar face was that of the young American hero of Innsbruck, Billy Koch, whose silver medal in the 30K Olympic race may have been regarded as a miracle by the uninformed in the U.S., but was hardly that shocking to European cross-country fans who had seen Billy coming on for a couple of years. The U.S. has never been much more than a tag-along in a world-class races. Uh, before, uh, before Coke's second, no American had ever been better than 15th in an Olympic cross-country event. Consequently, Europeans have viewed U.S. Nordic-style skiing with scorn, or not viewed it at all. Thus, it was surprising that they should dine to come to this cross-country wasteland (laughs) to a remote place called Telemark in the far reaches of northwest Wisconsin. To be sure, the race, a 15K event, had been sanctioned by the Fédération Internationale de Ski. It was also an official event on the Nordic World Cup schedule for 1976 to 1977. This is the relatively new, it is in its fourth season. Wait, is that even true? Fourth season? Let me go back to the page. Fourth season. Yeah, that is true. Okay, fourth season. Good job, SI. You weren't lying. Um, fourth season. Controversial series that offers a, ra- a racers a chance to accumulate points over a 14-race international season and helps produce a ranking of the world's best skiers. It is similar to the Alpine World Cup circuit, but the Scandinavian countries have refused to sanction the formula, saying they would participate at Telemark only if the words World Cup were never, never used. So last week's race was called the American Cup even though it was, in truth, a World Cup event and a landmark in that it was the first ever held in America. So this actually could be why they called that that the first World Cup event, the third one that actually happened. Maybe that's when they first used that term. However, obviously, this is a World Cup event, and it is the first ever held in America. I think that gets to the bottom, if if SI is not lying. However, the question remains, what induced Europe's cross-country stars to come 4,000 miles for a race completed in little more than 40 minutes before only a couple of hundred people from Wisconsin? The answer lies in the imagination and the wallet of one Tony Wise, a bulky, round-faced, 55-year-old promoter-entrepreneur who has run the Telemark ski area for almost 30 years. And now we have a little bit of history of this. 
um, this article, which I kind of do want to read. I think it's kind of fascinating. It's not too much longer. So let's see here. We've got, in 1947, Tony Wise bought a small swelling of a glacial moraine 18 miles north of Hayward for 750 bucks, got a war surplus Jeep engine to run a tow rope, and went into the ski resort business. Although it is a celebrated joke around the Midwest that Telemark is the only ski area in the world where the lodge is bigger than the mountain, the 370-foot hill attracted many Plain State skiers, but not enough to maintain itself by skiing alone, and Wise had to rely on the splashy promotion, the clever gimmick. He hired big-name per- performers from Duke Ellington to Chubby Checker. He threw an annual dinner called the Blue Ox Feast. He created a mass citizens cross-country race, the American Beer Combiner, which has come to be the U.S. largest. It will probably draw 3,000 in February. In 1972, he began adding a network of cross-country trails, now close to 60 miles. And last year, the U.S. team held its Olympic trials at Telemark, largely because it had not snowed at Lake Placid, the original training site. Logically or not, all of this caused Tony Wise's imagination to percolate, and he came up with the idea of holding a world-class race at Telemark. I was trying to think of a vehicle to promote the Birkenbeiner race, and this is what came to mind. Fair enough. To hold such a race, all Wise had to do was, one, get himself a world-class cross-country course, and two, entice a field of world-class racers to show up in Wisconsin. Being a man of direct action, Wise decided that the quickest way to do this was to spend money, which he did. He spent hundred grand last summer to build a spectacular new series of racing trails. They were designed by the U.S. T- uh, team coach, Marty Hall, a veteran of many years on the international circuit, and they wind through the woods in a classic arrangement of chilling downhill drops, skiers reach speeds of 40 miles an hour, and killing uphill climbs that drew gasping praise from the experts. John Caldwell, a former Olympian and coach who has long been one of America's best-known cross-country authorities, says that Telemark now has the finest trail network in this country. And Koch says that even in Europe, the only course superior to Telemark's is the Olympic Trail at Seafeld. Interesting. To get the racers, Wise put up another 60 grand for their plane fares, three days lodging and food, everything from the moment they left home until they returned. He paid for the top U.S. skiers as well. Wise put everyone up at his Telemark Lodge, an eclectic place geared for every kind of guest from families who cook in their rooms to singles on the prowl through the cavernous carpeted lobbies, bars, and ballrooms. Because Tony's psyche is perhaps charged a little more with the spirit of P.T. Barnum than that of Ul, the Norse ski god, he laid on an entertainment package that included several dozen Ojibwe Indians in full feather doing ceremonial dances, and he gave out lavish gifts, including fur-lined deerskin gloves made by the Indians. This article just gets more and more interesting. Hopefully you're enjoying this deep diving story. This is just incredible cedar skier content right now. When Wise had completed the preparations, the quality of the field was not in doubt. World Cup rules required that at least 10 racers who earned 20 or more points the previous season must be in the field for the race to be sanctioned. At Telemark, there were 16, including Cuevisto, who was number two, Mirmo, number four, Bra, number six, Repo, number seven, Coke, number eight. Coke said, there are only three World Cup races all this season that will be as good as this one. They are all in Scandinavia at the end of the season. Of course, much of the attention and the pressure was on the 21-year-old Coke to deliver something spectacular in his first major American race. It was a lot to expect. Few young men have undergone such a wrenching transformation in lifestyle as Billy Coke has since winning his silver medal. Less than a year ago, he was an intense, aesthetic young man, perhaps bordering on the reclusive, who seemed to enjoy the loneliness, the introspection, even the selfless suffering of cross-country skiing. 
That's a good description of Bill Koch. I like it. Uh, then he became an instant star, and his shell of solitude was shattered. His days were filled with promotional appointments, contract negotiations, and pleas for interviews and autographs. These interrupted his concentration and disrupted his training. A month or so before Telemark, he suffered a de debilitating reaction to medication he was taking for chronic asthmatic condition, an excruciating malady for a cross-country skier in that it's severely aggravating both by extreme exertion and by cold weather. Koch, who is 5'11 and normally weighs 165 pounds, lost 15 pounds at one point. The week before the race, he caught a cold, and the disastrous shortage of snow in the U.S. caused him and the rest of the American team to complete, complete only about half of the on-snow training they had last year at the same time. The U.S. Nordic team director, John Bauer, said before the race, I don't see how Billy can do anything very impressive. I'd have to say his chances are pretty slim, but I've seen him surprise the heck out of everyone before. The day of the American Cup race was partly cloudy. The course was not particularly fast, and whatever you wanted to call it, the event did not belong to America. From the start, Koch looked oddly limp, grim, and determined, but obviously far off form. In a field of 78, which included dozens of Americans and Canadian rookies, he struggled to finish 27th and will not enter any more, Amer any more World Cup races until he is fully recuperated. Europeans swept the first nine places. <clears throat> the winner was Pitkinen, a member of Finland's 1976 gold medal Olympic relay team, who completed the course in 43 minutes and 32 seconds. Bra was second in 43.50, followed by two more powerful Finns, Ripo and Koivisto. The best American finish, and a very good one in such a select field, was 10th by Stan Dunkley, 22, of Brattleboro, Vermont, a U.S. team member since 74, who had never been, never before placed higher than 27th in an international race. Tim Caldwell, 22, of Putney, Vermont, finished 15th, was the only other American in the top 20. Despite the relative mediocrity of the American performances at Telemark last week, the race itself was a milestone. Everything about the Gichigami Games was world-class, with the possible exception of the name. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, and Tony Wise has every intention of staging it again next year and for a long time to come. He said, we're like Green Bay with the Packers. We may be a small town in a remote place, but we got here first and we're going to stick with it. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> that There it is. There's the first, the actual first race in Telemark. Okay. Um, one, and, and I did verify these results here too. You can look at it. If you look it up at, again, this website, where am I going to again? Let's go find that. Um, 1976-77. So, Telemark, 15K. Yep. Timu, Timu, Pitkinen, Advar Bra, Johanny Repo won the 15K January 1977 in Telemark. Okay. So, we kind of got the race report from that story. Thank you to Sports Illustrated. The one that we don't really know about is the next year. The next year again, December 15th, we race in Telemark again, a 15K, Heiko Torvi, Jorma Copra, and Jim Galanis. We have nothing on that race that I could find so far. The third installment of the Telemark one starts 78-79. This one, um, of course, is the one considered to be the actual first World Cup event, apparently ever, <laughs> which makes no sense at all. But this one has quite a bit of information on it. Uh, if you go to that U.S. ski history, it's got... Um, a lot of stuff in here. Key personnel for the race organization. Tony Wise is there. Chief of Comp, Jerry Berard. Technical delegate, Bjorger Pedersen from Canada. Chief of course is Bob Trilland. Then we've got links to all the results too. Men's 15K, men's 3x10K relay, women's 5K, and women's 10K. And here's, I think, what, what we find to be quite interesting. First, let's, let's take a look at the 15 cup or the 15K for the men. Uh, the winner was Ovi only. Is that verified by our 
other one too. Yeah, it is. Okay, perfect. So these results are legit. Ovi Onley, Mariello Desult from, from Italy, Lars Eric Eriksson, <laughs> Lars Eric Eriksson, and Thomas Vosberg, uh, Joseph Lushicek. In fifth was Bill Koch. So he came back and had a, a nice race, 44-22. He was one minute off the winning time. Um, so he redeemed himself a bit there. Bill Koch in fifth. Stan Dunkley in eighth. That's a good performance for him, too. We had Matty Pitkinen from Finland back there, so he lost to Stan, Stan Dunkley. Tim Caldwell raced well as well, 12th. Um, Doug Peterson. Is that my dad's cousin? Doug Peterson? Someone look up who Doug Peterson is. Why haven't I heard of Doug Peterson? Wow, that's probably bad on my part. I should probably know who Doug Peterson is. Uh, but we have some other Americans uh, mentioned in here. Craig Ward was 25th. Dan Simenu, 28th. Now, this is, again, 1978. How old would Dan have been there? Couldn't have been that old, I wanted to think, right? Oh my gosh, there are some names in here we need to do a deep dive on. Okay, Dan Simino, we know, but look at this here. We have Howie Bean in 30th, and then I'm guessing some of these are some, um, okay, Bob Treadwell, these are all Americans, right? Fritz Koch, is that Bill Koch's brother? Probably, right? Todd Kempinen. The reason that name stands out is because of Bob Kempinen, obviously the Boston Marathon Olympic Trials winner from Minneapolis, right? Okay, we're going to look up Todd Kempinen. Campaign Todd Kempinen right now live on the Cedar Skier podcast. Can we get that? Todd Kemp Campaign. Oh, there it is. Okay, it's popping up. Let's do a little deep dive here. Todd Kempinen. All right. <laughs> Amanda Kempinen is from is uh competing currently at St. Michael's daughter of Todd Kempinen. So I'm wondering that that could be it actually could be the same guy. Wondering if it's connected all to Bob. Okay. We need to pause here. Let's come back to that. Okay. So I took a little break here. Now I'm back. I know seconds, right? This is the beauty of live radio slash uh, recorded podcast. Bob Kempinen, Kempinen. He's famous for uh, making it to the Olympics. He participated in 92 and 96 from Minneapolis, Minnesota. His best marathon time is 211 looks like he finished second at the new york city marathon uh it does appear that oh he's a graduate of dartmouth wow now i feel like i gotta go back i don't know the connections of these i i find i'm finding nothing no relation to todd who has a daughter who can played hockey for st michael's she didn't even ski so more on that i guess but let's keep looking at the results some of these americans were in here we got john creasel eric zinc um gordon lang Witt Johnson, Phil Peck, Stan Fieldjum. <laughs> yes. So he's the recently retired Northern Michigan coach. So he competed on the World Cup here. Stan, how old would he have been in 78? That's kind of the fascinating part. Look up some of these too. Tim Kelly, John Sackett, Brian Knutson, Eric Ati, Lot Straley, Zane Straley, John Melkerson, Mark Simon, John Essel, John Tormanson, Grant Uzensky, Andy Glowacki, Dan Kahan, Peter Caldwell, um, Joel Melkerson, Walter Malmquist, Tony Hartman. There's a ton of Americans in here, all kind of now at the end of the race. Jerry Downey, Jim Fredericks, Scott Taylor, 
Carl Swenson made it through five. Okay, wait, hold on. Carl Swanson. No way, right? Hold on. Of course, we have some people who did not start. Jim didn't start in this one. Neither did Odvar or Robert Valand or Rick Soley. Okay, we got to look at some ages for these athletes at this time. Carl Swenson is the Olympic skier, right? Carl Swenson competed in the Olympics in... He's also a cyclist, but right, 94 and 2002 and 2006. He's 51 years old right now. In 78, he would have been eight years old. And so I look back at the results. It does say Carl Swanson. Okay, so I, who is Carl Swanson? If you're out there and you know the Carl Swanson who would have raced 5K, the first 5K of this race, in Telemark in 1977. No, this is the 1978 one. So this is actually the third one. December 21st, 1978. If you know who that is, you should let us know. Because what if it's actually a spelling error and it was eight-year-old Carl Swenson who was in that? <laughs> I don't know. This, these are the stories that, that I want to uncover. <clears throat> There's a lot of Americans in this race, though. Um, the the link to this results page, very fascinating. Let me just see it, make sure we can... Um, we can use that. Yeah, I've got that linked. I can link it in our in our show notes. All right, the relay race, Italy won by 15 seconds over Team USA 1, which was Stan, Tim, and Bill. Uh, they were behind Italy's team. They beat France, uh, a decent Finland team, Canada. Uh, the, the, these relays weren't all that competitive. Looks like it's like we had an Italy team, US 1, France, Finland, Canada 1. Then we have a US 2, a US three a us eight wow us eight nice job guys canada four us five us four canada two us six canada three canada five us 11 us seven us 12 us 10 us nine um us unofficial U.S. unofficial. Why did they not go all the way through? That U.S. unofficial has Auden Endenston and Dan Simino on it, but they did not start, it looks like. The race secretary, Cheryl Pop, but Pop, P-O-P-P-E, not the same as the Pop of the current uh, executive director of the American Berkey, so I don't know if there's a relation there at all. Uh, any interesting performances in the relay? I don't know. We do have the split times here. Bill Koch went 30.08 which looks like it's the fastest time of any athlete. So he was the fastest skier in the relay, it appears. Um, Jim's team was US 2. They finished 6th. Jim skied a 33.55 that day. <clears throat> Fritz Koch was on USA 3, along with Bob Treadwell. Sten Filchems was USA 8. He must have carried them. Actually, he... Did not ski great on his leg. He skied a 34.51, and his, other, his teammates kind of skied out of their mind. It looks like 32.58, 32.59. Um, <clears throat> Todd Kempinen is in there again. Peter Caldwell's team. It seems like it's just a great day of racing. How about the women's races? We had a 5K and a 10K. Both were won by Allison Owen Spencer. Now, these, um, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not as familiar with, like, the, the level of status here, but I do see in these races, let's look at the 5K. It's got uh, weather, heavy snow, track is soft air, negative 6 Celsius, snow, negative 4 Celsius. Um, we've got, um, 
Alison Owen Spencer wins in 1714. Second place, Marie Johansson of Sweden, 1728. We have Barrett Cavello of Norway getting third. Joan Gruthison of Canada. Merit Mirma of Norway. Esther Miller of Canada. Lena Carlson Lindbeck of Sweden. Then Leslie Bancroft of USA. She is the current assistant coach at Bowdoin. I got to ski with her a little bit when I was a coach up there. Judy Rabinowitz in 13th place. She had bib 19, finished 1840. Um, so she was right in there, right in the mix. We have a ton of Americans as well, kind of after that point. How many total races are, racers are in here? It looks like 45 total athletes. Most of them are Canadians and Americans filling out the field. So I think the next thing is, how good are, were some of these Norwegians? Marie Jo Hansen. Let's check her out right now. What did she do? Marie Johansson, ski. Swedish skier, born 1963. Is that possible? Wow. So that she would have been 15 years old? She's married to fellow skier Gundes Vaughn? No way, right? She, If this is the same... Oh, wow. I don't know. 15 years old she would have been. Is that possible? Goodness sake. I mean, maybe a 15-year-old in the World Cup. Her World Cup started in 82. She ended up, she competed in the 5K at the 88 Winter Olympics. Looks like World Championship results. As an 18-year-old in 82, she was 8th, 6th, 7th. World Cup standings, overall 10th. She was on the podium once. Uh, Olympic results, 21st in the 5K. Is that actually, I mean, it has that all spelled out right. I don't know, man. Marie Johansson of Sweden was second. How about who is... Oh, wait, sorry. I was looking at the 10K results there. Oh, she was also second in the 5K one, though. All right, let's look at Barrett Cavello. Barrett Cavello. Cavello, skier, Norway. Here we go. Born in 1956, she's been 22. Won her first international championship medals, a member of the Norwegian team that won the bronze medal at the 4x5 1980 Olympics. Real breakthrough, 1982 World Ski Championship. She won gold in the 5K, 10K, and 4x5 relay races, silver at the 20K. Became the first winner of an of an official cross-country World Cup after her overall victory. So she was the first overall world champion or World Cup victory. 84 Olympics in Syria. She won two medals, gold in the relay, silver in the 5K. Wow. Okay, so fairly successful, looks like. <laughs> um, so this athlete, 76, she was 19, so 78, yeah, about 21 years old. So um, would go on to great things, especially in the 82 Worlds where she won three golds and a silver. A very dominant, right? Gold in the 5K, gold in the 10K, silver in the 20K, gold in the relay. So that's a pretty big scalp, I would say, Barrett Kvello of Norway that Allison Owen Spencer pounded into the ground. Um, Marie Johansson, that's interesting. Was she actually 15? Is she the Marie Johansson in skiing? Is there only one? Marie Johansson, ski, Sweden. Can we find that? Yeah, wow. I. Um, that's all that's coming up for me. And even if you look on the Olymp Olympic website, it does appear that that is who we're looking at, a 15-year-old at, at that event. Is that possible that she was just that amazing and that she was that young? Incredible. 10K time. Owen wins again. Judy, our Judy Rabinowitz, the Leadville, 36-22. Leadville native. She was 11th in that World Cup event. 
Um, did not beat any of the foreign athletes. There was an athlete from Australia who did not start. was on the starting list, though. Interesting. Um, this one, Marie Johansson, again, was was behind Allison Owen Spencer by 35 seconds. Allison Owen Spencer put the put the hurt bag on everyone, it looks like here. We have Lena Carlson Lundbeck of Sweden in this race, as well as Barrett Cavello again. So that's that's what happened on the women's side in this third ever Telemark race. Well, I think that is uh, has alerted our fan base to the injustices uh, that have been perpetrated by people saying that the first ever Telemark World Cup race was December 21st, 1978. It does appear that we actually had two races before then. So if, uh, if someone out there can give us a little more information about that, that'd be great, or alert the powers that be. Uh, Tom Horrocks at US Ski. Why? Uh, I think he was someone who had said it. The Duluth News Tribune. These people need to. These people need to be alerted to all of the harm and injustices that are happening here in this journalism reporting era. <laughs> Injustice is too strong of a word. It, it is okay. So that is today's Cedar Skier podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Oh, I forgot to uh, my big promotion that I was going to um, financial thing. I mentioned at the beginning of the show. Maybe that was just to get you through. No, it wasn't. I actually did have something. Um, but we'll have to save that for next time, I guess, uh, to keep you, keep you posted on how you can make money. Um, and lots of it, right? Great advertisement. Um, anyway. Okay. Cedar skier podcast. We'll see you later. Keep striving. Keep striving.